Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. In this episode, we're talking to Porter Gilberg, Executive Director of the LGBTQ Center Long Beach, about how his organization has been able to respond to emerging needs in the community. Hey, Trent, how are you? I'm doing well, Julie. How are you? I'm good. Are you really doing well, or how are you coping? Yeah, I I think I'm the last person to uh, be worthy of anybody's sympathy at this point. I have healthy children. I have a, a... house that I can retreat to. I'm doing good work. So I'm doing just fine. And I recognize that there are many, many others that are worthy of of our concern at this point. And so I'll go to the back of the line. Sounds good. I feel like I've been, when people have asked how I've been doing, I've been saying good. And then my brain has been like, you're not doing good. You're okay. You're dealing with a lot. But but I want to say I'm good. Yeah. It's as compared to others, obviously. That is absolutely true. I've spent the last two weeks helping some folks change fundraising plans and communication plans. So for the stuff that I'm seeing, has been a lot of work and a lot of last minute work and a lot of pivoting, which is a word I'm hearing a lot. And I was wondering if there are any pivots you've had to make at the Eisner Foundation. Well, I mean, we're doing the obvious ones in terms of, you know, staying at home and trying to bank online and and those types of things. But, you know, the biggest one is programmatically where we are, you know, obviously confronted with our temptation to get as much money out the door as humanly possible as we see a crisis around us. But we also want to be around for the long haul and want to be prepared for the second wave and the third wave and to do good work in the long run. And then, of course, programmatically, so many of the things that we fund at the Eisner Foundation are intergenerational in nature. And most of those involve getting seniors and kids together in the same room intentionally and, you know, creating programming that hopefully creates positive outcomes for both as well as their community as a whole. And so we are, of course, seeing organizations try to transition to electronic means of doing that and using technology but you know it's hard to get up to speed quick but it's 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 tough you know just walking the line between trying to do really 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 good work and really important work and ensuring that the work that you do is somewhat strategic and that we're around for a while to to do good work in the summer the fall and you know maybe even in the years to come yeah is that what you meant when you said the waves coming like just be being on the other side of this and being able to support other types of programming at the end of this? Is that? Yeah. I mean, I, there's, I actually was talking about the idea that there may be COVID-19 waves, you know, it it doesn't seem to me from what I, from what I hear from the public health experts that we're going to wrap this all up and it's going to be good. If we follow the proper guidelines and we socially distance and do all the things that we're supposed to do. I think I'm already supposed to call that physically distance. We're supposed to stay together socially. But if we physically distance ourselves from others, we can, of course, flatten the curve or whatever these terms are that we're all using like experts that we learned about six hours ago. But I I, I do understand that it's possible with the way that we travel in this country and with other countries not having access to some of the health benefits that we have, that there may be second and third waves of this particular virus. And, you know, we want to make sure that we are, if we're doing 
you know, respite care at this point and we're, that we're responding, that we can do it again in two months and four months and six months. And God forbid there's another variation. And so, you know, we want to be around for the long haul and do good work, but it's hard to, to figure out exactly how you do that when the compulsion is to try to do everything you can do right now, right this minute, while working from home and not being able to write physical checks. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. But again, we're, we're not on the front lines and those that are deserve the, the vast majority of our concern and our introspection yeah, and our and- support. That's right. And speaking of folks on the front lines, the stories I'm starting to hear are, you know, this crisis has really lifted up some new needs of the organization for organizations for the people that they serve. So today we're joined by Porter Gilbert um, and Porter is the executive director of the LGBTQ Center uh, Long Beach. And I'm just going to unmute him and he will join us. We're so glad to have you. So just to start, tell us a little bit about the center and what you do? Well, at the LGBTQ Center Long Beach, we advance equity for LGBTQ people. So we are one of more than 270 LGBTQ community centers in the country, and we exist to serve the LGBTQ community because we know that our community continues to experience barriers, discrimination. Uh, lack of access to health care. So our our goal and our purpose is to support our community in living their best life. And you actually have a very interesting history with the organization. And did I read that you started out as a volunteer? I did start out as an undergraduate intern. I was uh, at a class at UCLA where I had to uh, do an internship at an LGBTQ organization. And I liked it so much that I stuck around and volunteered for about three years before I started working there and uh, became executive director six years ago this month. So this is a uh, cautionary tale about volunteering then. <laughs> you know, uh, I really, you're, you're absolutely right. I started volunteering there and uh, they just really couldn't get rid of me. I, I did not expect to finish graduate school and, and work at a nonprofit and now that's my career. Well, they are very lucky to have you. Thank you. I'll be underpaid for life. And overworked. That is correct. So I am curious, Porter, you laid out, you know, what the overall mission of the organization, but what does that look like in day-to-day programming? We are primarily a direct service nonprofit. So we provide services to the community to to enhance their quality of life. So we are on the larger scale of LGBTQ community centers in the United States, but on the smaller scale of nonprofits. So we're about a $2 million organization with about 30 budgeted staff positions. And we have staff that do everything from HIV and STI counseling to mental health counseling, youth services, senior services, transgender focused programming, case management, domestic violence and legal services. So you name it, and we probably have it as a service for our community. We also produce a number of cultural programs. So we have an annual film festival, you know, the the basic fundraising stuff you'd expect at nonprofits, and then commemorative events to celebrate days of significance for our community. So, you know, Transgender Day of Remembrance, World AIDS Day, National Coming Out Day. So... A little bit of everything, essentially, but for those that you serve. 
how has that changed since this COVID-19 health crisis? What are you doing differently? Well, the, the challenging thing about COVID-19 is that the existing needs didn't really change. So with the existing needs that haven't changed, there's obviously new needs that have. So we know that, that issues like social isolation, higher likelihood of experiencing depression and anxiety, uh, higher risk in, in, in some parts of our community for experiencing domestic violence, hate violence, all of those things are still there, but now we're trying to mitigate higher levels of unemployment when the unemployment rate was already high. We're trying to mitigate you know, what we are anticipating to be an increase in hate violence and domestic violence and sexual assault, and also really trying to support some of the most vulnerable in our community, particularly our older adults, by ensuring they have access to their vital necessities and food. So we've also started offering no contact food drop off, either from the grocery store or or from an area food bank. So um, the needs have increased and the old needs are still there and we're all doing it remotely from home now. And I'm just curious that the escalation in hate violence and in domestic violence, that's tied to overall stress levels and I suspect economic uncertainty, even economic downfall. Is that, is that when you see those types of things spike? Well, with, with hate violence specifically, economic uncertainty is certainly a factor that, that contributes to increased hate violence. We, we also serve a, a large number of folks of color. So when you kind of look at the many identities that make up one person's identity, if they're an LGBTQ person and a person of color, or especially an LGBTQ person of Asian descent, we know that hate crimes right now, particularly targeting folks that are perceived to be, to be Asian, are on the increase. And so, you know, those are all factors that contribute to an increase in hate violence in our communities. When we look at domestic violence, we already know that transgender people, bisexual women, experience rates of domestic violence at much higher rates when compared to other populations. And now overall, not just in the LGBTQ community, but across the domestic violence service provider community, we are just bracing for a wave of folks reaching out to, for support because many of us are at stay-at-home orders right now. Folks who are already in unhealthy relationships are at a much higher risk for those becoming absolutely explosive. So it sounds Thank like, you. Porter, you're being asked to, you're, you're finding the need to deliver more services and it's harder to deliver services. Is that right? Yeah, well, it is certainly uh, challenging to to have to pivot to provide more services when that is not what we were planning on. This week was supposed to be the week before our annual gala that raises you know, 10% of our total operating budget for the year. That's obviously not happening. So on the administrative front, my, my CFO and I, I have gone to gone into emergency budget planning while on the service side, you know, we basically had to fully remote our staff in the course of about four days and figure out how to develop a plan of action to meet emerging needs with fewer resources than we were anticipating having. So what did you come up with? Does that answer your question? 
It does, and it, it opens up so many more questions. Yes. What, what did you do? What, what, what are your thoughts? What, what, what is the battle plan moving forward? Because, you know, you're working from home, you have less revenue, you have more people who need to be served. It's harder to serve them because you can't bring them together into one particular place. Please, as, a, as an expert in this field, share with us a, a few of your ideas for how best you're going to, to serve the, the folks that you try to provide access and opportunity to. Well, we were incredibly fortunate that we had an infrastructure that allowed for a very rapid transition to remote working. So, for example, our phone system was already a voice over IP system. We already had a Zoom integration um, in our phone system platform. So, um, operating remotely, having calls that would normally go to our front desk, go to our laptops or to our cell phones was something we were very quickly able to transition to. The next big step for us would be to transition that into a cloud server. That's kind of our biggest technological failing right now. We're basically patching into our server, which we've got to think about in terms of IT security. But overall, our infrastructure was already set to be able to transition to a remote work plan. And the learning curve was really getting our staff up to speed on technology. Where we're at right now is, you know, all of our services can be offered. Folks can continue to meet with their case managers. We can continue to serve our clients using our, our remote technology, but we're already seeing the potential for how that um, might be challenging. So we also have a volunteer base of about 600 people. One of the one of the emerging uh, topics right now within LGBTQ community centers that have group programming is Zoom bombing. So outsiders, you know, getting access to Zoom meetings and then just inundating them with really awful, hateful language. So we're thinking through as we offer things like. Um, our Tuesday Coffee Talk, which is a group for older adults to just have coffee and talk. If, as we think through things like our transgender support group, what types of security measures can we really get in place to make sure folks continue to access group programming safely? We're also looking at hopefully being able to expand things like food distribution, which I mentioned, with enhanced case management, knowing that the unemployment rate is skyrocketing right now, and especially skyrocketing in the LGBTQ community, because so many of us are employed in the service and hospitality sectors, applying for COVID-19 funding that is being released by a number of foundations, and hoping that they understand that our community is a disadvantaged special population, just like our immigrant communities, just like our communities of color, just like you know, communities that have lower, lower incomes, you know, all of those communities are wrapped up in our community and, and the need for rapid response funding is, is pretty critical right now for us and a lot of other LGBTQ centers. Porter, you said something in there. One, I want to know, what have you come up with to make your folks feel safe about Zoom bombing? Have you come up with a solution for that? We are in the process of formalizing our procedures for promoting our groups to new members. Right now, 
the groups we do offer primarily through our senior services programming and our youth and family services programming. The, the access information for those groups is only being made available to existing clients. If somebody new does call in and it seems like they would benefit from those group services, we are now screening on a, a person-by-person basis to ensure that that person meets the eligibility of the group programming. So our temp fix is really an individual screening and, and long-term, and by long-term, because long-term is really, you know, what, 48 hours at this point, we're going to have all of our procedures finalized and formalized in the next 48 hours. That's great. And the other thing I heard you say was you had 600 volunteers. Yes, we have a we have a very large volunteer base. So, you know, like a lot of nonprofits, volunteer services are absolutely critical to us being able to meet the needs of our community. We have a very robust volunteer program where folks help us out basically in in every department from our administration to our youth and family services, mental health counseling, legal services, and and we are also working with our existing volunteers to support them in getting acquainted with our new technology and then also offering new new opportunities to get involved in some of our in some of our emerging programming like our food distribution special projects so working from home there's a lot of administrative stuff that gets put on the back burner and we're now moving that to the front burner and and really utilizing volunteers who are looking for something to do to help us get get caught up on our administration yeah, I was just going to ask how you keep volunteers, how do you retain your volunteers? How do you keep them engaged and involved if they're remote? Because I feel like for a lot of people, the act of volunteering is a social one and it's about connecting and uh, connecting and connecting with others. So do you have any tips for other organizations that are looking at remote volunteer forces? The first group of volunteers we we immediately engaged were our long-term volunteers. So uh, certain departments for us that rely on volunteers, especially specialized volunteers, there's, there's not a whole lot of uh, retention strategy implemented. So our mental health counseling programs and intern-based program, those folks need their hours. They're not going anywhere. Our, our volunteer attorneys those are attorneys if they can make it through law school you know they can they can follow through on a commitment we're really talking about folks like our mentors in our youth program our front desk volunteers and we really started with the folks that we knew even if they really liked volunteering with us because of that social aspect we started working with folks to you know try and create that as remote as as possible and and really just thank them and honor them and the value they, they continue to bring. You know, we have some volunteers who have been with us over 30 years and those, it's not hard to convince them that, that their work is important because they've been around so long. Porter, Julie knows, and, and the nine listeners to this podcast know that the answer to all questions is money. And the first, second, and third job of every executive director in this country is to raise money and then raise money and then raise some more money. I'm curious how you are pivoting to raise money at this time. If you have different strategies, if you're approaching donors already, if you're relying on an email campaign or on phone calls, what are you doing? Because as noble as your efforts are, 
you know, to serve the people that you're trying to serve, you're going to have to bring dollars in the door. So I'm curious, as an experienced fundraiser, experienced executive director, what are your strategies for raising money right now? Well, there has been a lot coming out about new ways to bring resources in in light of COVID-19. I've been following the fundraising landscape very closely. So we have already sent out appeal letters, letting our community know what we are doing right now, that we are still open, that we are still operating, that we are still serving our community, and we're serving our community in new and innovative ways in light of COVID-19. So at the base level, we've already sent out email campaigns and, and we're going to uh, be sending out certainly more emails to our base to let them know what we're doing and how they can invest in that work. I'm reviewing every emergency response grant that I'm seeing to see if that is mission aligned with us. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a very strong and seasoned board who understands that just because a grant is available, that doesn't mean we're going to apply for it because, you know, it, it, we're not going to create something new that wouldn't make sense. But grant funding is is certainly a part of that. And then and then I'm also in the process of bringing on additional development staff to support with, with our fundraising. Uh, we are fortunate in that we are a very financially secure organization. That doesn't mean we don't need donations, but you know, we had the foresight to you know, take out a line of credit a couple of years ago. So we know if it gets really bad, we can fall back on our line of credit. We also have three months of operating reserves. So if one of our government contracts doesn't pay us, you know, We've, we've got some operating reserves to fall back on. So, you know, the, on the individual giving front, we're looking to really um, expand that right now while also looking at any other government or foundation funding that, that might align with our mission. I, I don't want to gloss over what you just said because it sounds to me like you, you slipped it in while I, I wasn't quite listening. You're actually hiring people at this point to, to lead larger developmental efforts? Yeah, so and right that's, now, that's that's bold. That's that's courageous. That's not what every nonprofit in this country is doing when times are tough. They're they're firing people, they're closing doors, they're, you know, taking away the good coffee in the coffee pot. You're actually saying that, you know, we need to be courageous and we need to strike while the iron is hot because the stakes are high and we need to bring more money in the door. Absolutely. And, and we are fortunate. It's, it's a blessing and a curse for us that a significant um, portion of our funding comes from government contracts. So our health services, our mental health services, legal and domestic violence services, all that's government funded. So our program staff is, is stable right now. We are not anticipating that funding going away because we're still providing those services. Everybody's still getting paid and we are we are not anticipating any layoffs, any job reduction. You know, our our finances are stable. Our staff have a job to do. We have a mission to execute. So there will be no staff changes. And prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, we had four open positions that we were hiring for. And that is not changing. We're still conducting interviews and we have actually brought on new staff. We 
we brought someone on last Monday. Their first day was was Monday, and we are we are onboarding them remotely. Good for you, Porter. Good for you. I love it. Speaking of speaking of staff, you you joked before that long term planning was forty eight hours now, and I think that's right. We we can't we don't have the ability to plan that much. So how do you work with your staff to keep them flexible and like from burning out? Well, communication has become much more of a necessity at at the center right now. One of the first things that I implemented when we realized we were we were going to be going remote is an amended communication plan and check-in schedules. So communication happens a lot more frequently now. I used to meet with the folks that reported to me every other week. Now we're meeting individually weekly. Our management team used to get together once a month to talk about high-level organizational issues. We're getting together weekly now. Our staff is getting together as a full team once a week now, and my board is now receiving weekly updates on our programs and services, our finances, potential funding opportunities, and external communications. They get an email from me every Friday. So we've just increased the frequency of our communication, but increased it in a way that is very structured so that everybody has the information they need to be able to serve our community effectively. And how are you helping staff prioritize the needs from your community, which must be feel overwhelming at times, but prioritizing the, the emerging needs? Well, one of the ways I am supporting is by getting more involved. You know, as, as executive director, you know, a lot of my, my role has been oversight, administration, and fundraising. Because we are a smaller nonprofit, when it comes to meeting those emerging needs, I'm now actually supporting direct services again. And as somebody who started out as a volunteer who uh, worked in direct services for a number of years before I took over as executive director, I'm fortunate that I actually you know, know how to serve the community because I believe in serving the community and I've done it before. I'm supporting staff by doing everything from checking in on some of our seniors by phone so that our senior services coordinator can take care of something else to ensuring that I'm able to support with any policy and procedure development that we need, to making sure in our our staff meetings, our management meetings, and individual check-ins with my staff that I fully understand the work they need to do so I can find a way to pay for it. So that's what I'm doing right now. Porter, what's ahead? What what does this mean for, for your center, and how is your work going to change moving forward? And What's the landscape look like for you? Well, to be honest, one of the things keeping me up at night is the services that we are currently not providing that are pretty essential. So as I mentioned, going remote, we are not able to offer our testing services. I know there are quite a few people in our community who are not six feet apart from each other and in fact may have very little distance from one another. So our testing services are something that I'm talking about with our health services team to see if there's a way for us to potentially consider safely reopening. That's an example of one of those needs we know our community has that is pretty unmet right now. Most testing providers have closed down. I'm also gonna be looking at 
some virtual fundraising opportunities. So I know for, for development nerds, virtual fundraisers are the latest hot topic. And, you know, and so that's something that I'm going to look at, especially knowing that we have a lot of stuff left over that was supposed to be auctioned off at our gala, which was going to be, you know, five days from now. So looking at some virtual fundraisers and really working to, to be the best nonprofit we can in our community to really demonstrate and, and, and do the work to remain financially stable and healthy so that we're not only serving our community, but showing every nonprofit that it is really possible to, to keep your staff and, and thrive when you're living in a world um, filled with fear and uncertainty. So we'll end with this question. Porter, what advice do you have for EDs of other organizations? I mean, right now, you know, I've been thinking a lot about leadership in crisis. I know for me, you know, having, having worked at the center for a decade and, and six years at ex- as, as executive director, this is the first you know, global crisis I have run an organization during. And, you know, I feel like I've been calm and that I'm, I haven't checked out. And I really think that's, that's made all the difference. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big feelings person. I can be all business at work. And as I work at a community center, I, I work with folks who, who show big emotions because they have big hearts and they really believe in the work. And for me, coming across as all business is, I've learned, is not the right approach right now. Being able to clearly articulate to my staff that their jobs are safe, that I care about them, that, you know, everybody we work with, we care for one another, I think has been, been a really comforting and assuring experience for folks. Something I did that worked really well with uh, my staff at our last staff meeting is our is I post a closing checkout question that was optional for everyone to answer, and the question was, "What is one thing you can offer to your coworkers to support them right now?" And it could really be anything. And everybody shared, and everybody had something to offer from fresh baked bread to memes to cat photos to a listening ear, and that actually that actually grew into a separate chat group for the entire staff that is just a support chat group where folks, nobody has asked for for anything, but a, a whole lot of people have posted things that they can give. I'd like the bread if it's available. Um, it is delicious. Um, I got a loaf. I felt bad. I didn't just want to take, so I traded it for half a chocolate cake I had made in my freezer. No. And it is absolutely delicious bread, courtesy of our community outreach and operations manager. Oh my goodness. Well, Porter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all this information. Best of luck with this. You're handling a lot and you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity uh, to chat with both of you. Thank you, Porter. Keep up the great work. Seriously. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. 
Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.